a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Doug Wright Show, where Utah news breaks on KSL News Radio, 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Great to have you along on a Monday morning here at KSL News Radio. Boy, do we have some things to get into on the show today, and let's get right to that. And let's talk about the big three issues that we're keeping a very, very close uh, eye on this morning. First of all, Trump's election makeover. I mean, this is amazing. What we are seeing now is the attempted, whether it will be successful or not, who knows, but the attempted makeover of Donald Trump in order to make him more palatable for the general election. And we are going to place, well, listen to this. Donald Trump is a narcissist and he's an egomaniac. Uh Uh-huh. Well, now what is Bobby Jindal saying? We'll tell you coming up in a second. And then we're keeping a very close eye on this issue. And it's the Bears Ears National Monument. Is it going to happen or not? I'll tell you, when you see a headline like this, uh, White House urges Utah delegation to find consensus on Bears Ears. The only thing that's missing on that is or else. Uh, That was in the Tribune. We've got a phone call into Representative Rob Bishop. They are looking at uh, Congressman Bishop's schedule right now, so we can hopefully find out, will the public land initiative stave off a new 1.9 million acre national monument? Remember it was a couple of weeks ago that I tried to put that in perspective? First of all, that is as big as the Grand Staircase Escalante, maybe even just a breath bigger. It is bigger than Delaware. It is bigger than Rhode Island. It is a huge chunk of Maryland. It would be one-third the size of New Hampshire, one-third the size of Vermont, and half the size of Hawaii. That's how big an area that we are talking about. So we'll uh, remember we talked with Governor uh, Herbert about this too. Uh, when we talked with him, uh, actually we put in the phone call to talk with him about Senator Bennett and uh, the passing of of Senator Bennett. But uh, we also uh, found out that the governor had just been on the phone with the White House, and we got a little bit of an update from the governor on that. And everybody's just holding their breath. Uh, nobody knows. And many people had it, uh, say are saying that had it not been for the public land initiative that is sponsored by uh, Representative Bishop and Representative Chaffetz, that uh, we probably would have a brand spanking new national monument right now in the state of Utah. And again, remember, the idea isn't that a national monument is necessarily a bad idea. It's just having one arbitrarily uh, foisted on the state of Utah. And then, of course, the other issue that we're going to be looking at, we are going to be taking a look at Utah's new abortion law. And coming up in just a moment, we are going to be talking with Dr. Lexi Eller, who is an OBGYN. And the thing that is of concern right now 
is uh, everybody wants to protect the unborn. Very few people are quote-unquote for abortion. They are for having the option under varying circumstances. And everybody is is concerned and wants to be concerned about the life of, of the unborn child and certainly the life and the health and well-being of the mother. And there are many doctors right now that are saying that there is a conflict here for them. Things that they normally would not administer to a woman, things that could be uh, threatening to a woman. Now, by Utah law, they are basically being forced to do. So we are going to be talking with Dr. Lexi Eller, OBGYN, coming up here at KSL News Radio, and why some physicians are having some of very serious heartburn over Utah's uh, new anti-abortion law. This was sponsored by uh, Senator Kurt Bramble. I wanted to just set the stage, too, for a little bit more on your voice, your vote. Later on, we're really going to delve into this. And you got to love a headline like this. The Year of the Hated. This comes out of Washington Post. The Year of the Hated. Clinton and Trump, two intensely disliked candidates, begin their face-off. And you have to love something like this. Here are some of the rousing endorsements that we are getting. First of all, Senator Ben Sass said he, he just can't do it. He just can't do it. And he said, in the history of polling, we've basically never had a candidate viewed negatively by half of the electorate. There are dumpster fires in my town more popular than these two leaders. I mean, getting... I mean, with with endorsements like this and glowing lines like that, and of course he was referring to Hillary Clinton and he was referring to Donald Trump. And then I love this one, Bobby Jindal, who last September called Donald J. Trump a narcissist, an egomaniac, an egomaniacal madman who had no principles, has now said that he would vote for the presumptive nominee. Now, I want you to listen to how rousing an endorsement this is. He said that he would support Mr. Trump, quote, warts and all, because he thinks that Hillary Clinton would be a more dangerous option for the country as president. This is the exact quote. And boy, the crowds are cheering over this one. I think, this is Bobby Jindal, I think electing Donald Trump would be the second worst thing that we could do. In November. Uh, I'm feeling a lot of love in the room. And, of course, we can't resist Sarah Palin. Whenever Sarah Palin steps to the microphone, you know you are going to get some kind of an interesting soundbite. And now she is saying that this is the former Alaska governor predicted in an interview on CNN State of the Union. Remember former Representative Eric Cantor of Virginia? He was in line to be Speaker of the House, but he lost a re-election in a Republican primary in 2014. Sarah Palin, Sarah Palin has had something rather glowing to say here. Whenever Sarah Palin speaks, when I was a kid, you know, it was Merrill Lynch. You know, when Merrill Lynch speaks, you know, people listen. Well, when Sarah Palin speaks, I suppose we all need to listen as well. I think Paul Ryan is soon to be cantered as an Eric Cantor. His political career is 
over, uh, but for a miracle, because he has so disrespected the will of the people. Oh, my goodness. Really? Really? Wow, Sarah Palin. Right now, Paul Ryan is probably the most respected, the most admired, and deemed by most to have the best political future of any Republican out there. But, oh my goodness, what is his sin? Let me tell you what his sin is. His sin is that he didn't fall in line for Donald Trump. Hmm. Now, at some point, he very well may. At some point, Paul Ryan might just bite the bullet and kind of do a Bobby Jindal and go, yeah, remember that famous line in in the movie? Uh, I'm sorry, sir, this is the best bad idea we have. Well, that's basically what Jindal said. I think electing Donald Trump would be the second worst thing we could do in November. The only thing, according to former Governor Jindal, that we could do would be worse would be to elect Sarah Palin. So I'm not ruling out. I think at some point probably probably Speaker Ryan will fall into line, but his reluctance is heartening to me. The breaking news keeps rolling when you're at work. Use the audio stream at KSL.com for Doug Wright and KSL News Radio. Great to have you along this morning here at KSL News Radio. We have a Utah law that goes into effect tomorrow. <clears throat> and boy, there have been a lot of physicians that have had a little heartburn over this. And we will be the first state in the nation to require doctors to administer pain medication to a fetus. And uh, the article in the Deseret News says this law puts legislators in the unusual position of being at odds with many maternal fetal medicine specialists here in our state. I'm very pleased that uh, we have Dr. Lex, uh, Dr. Lexi Eller, who is joining us on the line right now. And uh, Dr. Uh, Eller, I understand you are standing in line to get on a plane right now, and I certainly appreciate you making time for us. Thank you for having me. This is an important discussion that we all need to have. Uh, you know, on one hand, every, nobody wants the, the, the thought of a, a fetus feeling pain. Does a fetus feel pain at 20 uh, weeks? You know, the ultimate truth is that this is a, a, an unanswerable question. The best scientific and medical evidence would suggest that neuroanatomically, these fetuses are not capable of experiencing pain in the way that we think of a full-term infant, a child, uh, an adult feeling pain. And that's based on sort of, again, the best evidence in neuroanatomy and the understanding of the connections between peripheral reflexes and the central brain, the thalamus, and the cortex, which is really where our experiential conscious perception of pain exists. So the feeling is that that's not really, the fetus doesn't really have capacity for that in the traditional sense that we understand it until quite a bit later in gestation probably closer to 28, 26 weeks, something like that. Mm -hmm. What is the main problem with this law from someone who is in your specialty, maternal uh, fetal medicine? Right. So we know that when women are facing a decision to terminate a pregnancy after 16, 18, 20 weeks, uh, particularly in Utah, it's typically because they're facing a, a severe 
uh, fetal abnormality that we've made a diagnosis of. Um, and these are incredibly vulnerable women, any woman facing this decision. And so it is paramount that physicians give honest, medically-based, evidence-based counseling um, and information to them that is unbiased in either direction. We have to tell them honestly when they ask or, or that we don't know 100% that this is the data that we have. This is our best understanding of the potential for pain. Um, and, and so we feel that this isn't about abortion per se. It's about being honest. It's about the fact that we don't feel politicians should mandate the counseling that takes place in the private setting of the physician patient relationship. What typically happens now, doctor, when you are in this situation and having one of these uh, very candid, if not difficult, uh, conversations with one of your patients? What kind of information does uh, go on and the requirement and the absolute mandate by law, how, how big of a deal is that? Well, first, I think it's important to know that these are extraordinarily difficult and complex conversations that we have. There's nothing simple about it. And when a woman is facing a decision about whether or not to, to consider terminating a pregnancy, we talk about her option. To terminate a pregnancy after 20 weeks, women have the option of surgical termination, which is what people think of as the stylation and, ex- and evacuation or D&E, and induction of labor, akin to any induction of labor at any gestational age. So part of the issue with this law is that it suggests that induction of labor is also painful for the fetus. So when we have this conversation and we discuss the pros and cons of the different ways to end the pregnancy for these women, we have to talk about what the risks and benefits are to her. We know that a D&E is actually a bit of a safer procedure for women than undergoing labor induction in terms of the risk of blood loss, length of stay in the hospital, risk of infection, some of these kinds of things. And so those things have to play into our conversation as well. So patients, you know, are extremely thoughtful, and most of these are very desired pregnancies as well. well. And I'm usually asked by patients, do you think that the fetus feels pain? And we have an in-depth discussion about it, and I know that all of my partners do, right? And we're all very careful to say, look, we don't know, but this is what the best evidence tells us. Mm -hmm. When medication is given, anesthesia is given, for the fetus, obviously that goes through and will affect the mother. Just what are the downsides of trying to deal with whatever right. pain right. may or may not be felt? Well, let's, let's talk about that for a moment. So anyone undergoing a surgical termination of pregnancy, and let's be clear, too, that that refers to uh, these women have that option at 20 to 21 weeks. After 21 weeks, typically any indu- uh, termination of pregnancy is going to be through labor induction. When women undergo that as a surgical procedure, by the nature of that procedure, they are receiving some sort of analgesic or anesthetic. And typically that's going to go through the maternal intravenous system and then cross over to the fetus. So in most cases, that's already happening uh, because we're treating the mother. Mm-hmm. With labor induction, however, that's a very different situation. Women who undergo labor induction, if they choose to do so, can have an epidural. Like a woman in term labor has an epidural. And that kind of medication doesn't go to the fetus. In fact, it's actually very beneficial that it doesn't when we're talking about laboring uh, term babies and preterm babies uh, because it doesn't anesthetize the fetus. So those are the women in particular that are vulnerable with this law because now we're faced with, well, what medications do we give and, and do we anesthetize intentionally the fetus, which is outside of standard of care for labor induction. There's never a discussion of anesthetizing a fetus at term when we know they're fully intact and maybe uncomfortable. Um, and so this really changes the conversation about what that experience is for labor and the fetus, and that's part of the implication that concerns us with this law. 
What so, what what is the direct downside for the mother if if there is more anesthetic right. given? So I, I suppose this is the other issue I, I, I want to bring up. You know, when we look at maternal mortality in the setting of pregnancy in the United States, it's estimated at 18 to 20 per 100,000 women will die from pregnancy-related causes. If you look at maternal mortality from abortion, it takes the CDC three years to get enough data because it's so rare, and it's about 0.72 per 100,000 women. And if you look at the causes of mortality in women undergoing termination of pregnancy, they're typically related to the anesthetic, not to the procedure itself. So when we're talking about additional administrations of medications, again, outside of current standard of care for the purpose of anesthetizing the fetus, we may be risking you know, increased morbidity and, and dangers to the mother by administering extra analgesic or anesthetic medications. You know, we all know that opioid medications, which are the typical type administered intravenously, uh, you know, can cause respiratory depression and these kind of things. So I think we just have to be careful that these sort of quick commentary about we'll treat the fetus without any thought to what that actually means for the mother, what those doses would be, um, is premature. Um, and we feel that that's not the place for the legislature to make those decisions to mandate that we administer specific medications to patients. Dr. Eller, are you concerned that this law may now spread through the country and what kind of complications would that make if it became more widespread to your profession? Well, I I think the concern, again, is that this is a broadening of this discussion um, about being honest with women and keeping medicine in the realm of medical providers and their patients. Um, And you know, I think these, these bills, and again, I want to emphasize that all of us in maternal fetal medicine at, at both major institutions um, are opposed to this, and we fall across the spectrum on our personal beliefs and our clinical practice with regards to abortion. We don't feel that these types of fetal pain bills are actually related to abortion. They're related to a bigger issue of we don't believe that politicians should mandate the physician-patient relationship or the administration of medications outside of standard of care. It is interesting because the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have opposed this legislation. They they quote all kinds of research. And Dr. Eller, I know you went to extraordinary efforts to join us today, and I very, very much appreciate your expertise, your insight, and, of course, your time. And I wish you a safe journey, and thank you for joining us. Well, I thank you so much for having us and, and for keeping this discussion going because it's really important to women. Um, these are vulnerable patients, and we feel very protective of them and of our role in, in counseling them in an honest and unbiased way and giving them all the information, not biased in either direction. Dr. Lexi Eller with us and uh, whose expertise is in maternal and fetal medicine joining us here at KSL News Radio. The Doug Wright Show, where Utah News breaks on KSL News Radio, 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Okay, I want to talk about what's unfolding back in North Carolina and get your response. North Carolina was on a very short leash from the Justice Department. Uh, the Justice Department making some uh, fairly, fairly serious threats regarding the new North Carolina law regarding bathrooms. And so North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory filed a lawsuit today to stave this off. So the lawsuit is against the Justice Department asking the federal court to state that its so-called bathroom law is not discriminatory. And in the complaint, McCrory accused the federal government of baseless and blatant overreach. Now, you are going to hear Governor McCrory refer to attorney general. The reason he's referring to uh, attorney generals 
in general back in North Carolina is because the North Carolina Attorney General Roy Cooper, who is a Democrat, is facing McCrory in what is expected to be a close gubernatorial election in November. Now, uh, Roy Cooper has said he will not defend the measure known as House Bill 2. And uh, this is a quote, Governor McCrory signed HB 2 into law in the dark of night after passing it in just 12 hours and now complains when he's given five days to defend it. So this is what Governor McCrory is saying. We didn't have an attorney general who would defend common sense privacy laws in our restrooms, our locker rooms, in our shower facilities, in government buildings, in our universities, in our schools. And he went on to say, We didn't have an attorney general who would object to local government becoming the bathroom police for hundreds of businesses in one of our major cities. So this is uh, a big political issue in North Carolina as well. I think it's important to keep that in perspective as we uh, note the conversation. Boy, everybody, they have drawn their lines in the uh, in the sand or their line outside the bathroom on this one, as it were. But what's interesting about this is the outcry around the nation, including from Salt Lake City. And whether you agree with this or not, the fact is that our Salt Lake City Mayor, Jackie Biskupski, and the City Council have uh, expressed real alarm and concern over what is happening in North Carolina and have actually banned travel. We put in a phone call to Mayor Biskupski this morning, and she apparently is in meetings all morning. We also put in phone calls to the uh, city council, which, if I remember correctly, voted unanimously to uh, back Mayor Biskupski on this one. And any unnecessary travel, things of that nature for North Carolina of uh, Salt Lake City employees and so on is uh, effectively banned. But it's it's not the the <laughs> I, I'm, I doubt that we're uh, you know making them quake in their boots back there. But I'll tell you what is. Threats of losing some f- serious federal dollars. The next steps in North Carolina could have major financial impact. Several federal agencies reviewing whether to withhold funding because of the law, putting potentially billions of dollars at stake. I mean, this could af- af- affect North Carolina to the tune of four billion dollars from the education department alone they send the state annually more than four billion much of it in the form of student loans and the justice department sent a letter about the bathroom law to uh, margaret spellings president of the university of north carolina and uh, she has said that she will also respond by the monday deadline a lot of title nine issues all kinds of things are at play here so north carolina uh, could be in jeopardy of losing some substantial federal dollars. And others, especially the business community in North Carolina, they are very concerned about some of the money that they perceive and they note that they have lost due to this legislation as well. And, uh, for example, since the law was signed into effect, HB2, by Governor McCrory, PayPal, The Deutsche Bank both said that they were going to abandon their expansion plans in North Carolina because of this measure specifically. The companies had planned to employ hundreds of people in the state. State officials had said that these expansions would have brought millions of dollars into the local economies. But it doesn't stop there. 
it uh, seeps into sports as well. The National Basketball Association has also said it will move the All-Star game from Charlotte next season if the law is not changed. So that just gives you a little background on what is unfolding back in North Carolina. Now, this was a preemptive move by the governor today. If he can keep this tied up in court, at least um, some of the punitive uh, things cannot happen until this is resolved. So monies will continue to flow. Uh, education, uh, the various monies, $4 billion from the Department of Education alone, will theoretically continue to flow unfettered. But in a very short period of time, and especially in a highly contentious political race against the Attorney General of the state of, uh, of uh, uh, North Carolina, this is what the governor felt would be the best thing to do, to, to tie it up in court, prevent until something is resolved, because the federal courts had indeed put a very short leash on this, and if something did not come about as of today, the state would be found in violation of federal civil rights law. You might recall that uh, there was a letter last week from Vanita Gupta, who is the head of the Justice Department Civil Rights Division. Federal officials uh, said that North Carolina's law, which bans transgender people from using bathrooms that don't match the gender on their birth certificates, violates federal civil rights laws. So the counter-lawsuit now has at least uh, uh, given a little breathing time for the discussion. And it will be interesting to see what unfolds in North Carolina. KSL uh, Talk is our number, 5758255. Coming up, I believe we're going to talk with Congressman Bishop about Bears Ears. Maybe. The Doug Wright Show. Doug goes wall to wall when the news is breaking fast on KSL News Radio. Okay, we really need uh, a little different music for this segment of the show. And since there is kind of a, it's kind of a Pygmalion situation that at least some people are praying and, and hoping for, I'm not really quite sure how Donald Trump, what kind of a, a uh, Eliza Doolittle he's going to be. Yeah, remember this? Oh, working so hard. Poor Professor Higgins. Yeah, day and night he was working on the transformation of Eliza Doolittle. And apparently there are those who are working on the transformation of the Donald. As we speak. And what is happening is we're already beginning to see the Donald step forward and making some subtle changes. For example, now he's talking about minimum wage. And now, in fairness, Donald Trump is saying that it needs to stay with the states. But he's saying, how does anybody live on $7.25 an hour? Hmm? Okay. And then... Remember last September, he released a tax proposal that included broad tax breaks for businesses and for households. He proposed reducing the highest income tax rate to 25% from the current 39.6% rate. But apparently he uh, is changing his mind, saying that he and other very wealthy people 
would most likely, under a Trump administration, be paying considerably more. Now, he was pressed on the contradiction. People were saying, okay, now wait a minute, Mr. Trump, wait a minute. You, not that long ago, said that the tax breaks for the wealthiest actually ought to get better. Well, he said that he viewed his original proposal as, quote, a concept, and that he expected it would be changed following negotiations with Congress. So where does Donald Trump stand on taxes? We're not quite sure. And we're beginning to see more and more and more of these types of things. There is a huge, deep divide among Republicans over Trump's candidacy. He has pledged to try to unite the party ahead of the convention. Paul Ryan, the top elected U.S. Republican, has distanced himself from Trump over his proposal to temporarily ban Muslims from entering the United States. Do you suppose he's going to temper that at all? Uh, Trump has also called for new tariffs on Chinese and Mexican imports to the United States, a position at odds with the views on trade held by Paul Ryan and many other pro-business Republicans. Do you suppose he's going to temper his thoughts on that? Uh, (laughs) The the one that I'm waiting for is the reality check on who's actually going to pay for whatever wall Mr. Trump actually thinks that he is going to, uh, to build. Uh, Ryan, by the way, whether or not, here's the big question, how much of a to-do is there going to be over Paul Ryan as the chairman of the Republican convention? Theoretically, Mr. Trump could uh, raise a, a big stink over that, and there is even a very remote possibility that through whatever, forced out deciding, look, I don't want to be the chair of this convention convention, that Paul Ryan could actually step down from that position in Cleveland. Um, He said that, now remember, Paul Ryan hasn't ruled it totally out. I mean, Ben Sass, I don't know how he's ever going to get back into uh, a position where he could support support Mr. Trump, because again, this has to be the quote of the week, and we need uh, cheers and applause on this one, because Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska, who's been on this radio show, he's been right here in studio with us, said, quote, There are dumpster fires in my town more popular than these two leaders, referring to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. So, um, boy, with support like that. And then I also, I, I, I couldn't resist this one. Bobby Jindal, who you might recall last September, called Donald J. Trump a narcissist and an egomaniacal madman who had absolutely no principles, he has indicated that he would vote for the presumptive Republican nominee. And again, listen to the cheers this should get. He said, I think electing Donald Trump would be the second worst thing that we could do this November. So the uh, care and feeding and the rehabilitation of Donald Trump. How far will it go? You know, I am I am not uh, expecting any kind of radical change in the Donald. Oh, yeah, I don't know if the Republican Party has a Professor Higgins who can somehow mold him into maybe a little bit more of a palatable candidate. 
Remember, the reason that Donald Trump's um, supporters love him so much is because he is not of the mold. He has not conformed. Now, who he is and what he is, I think if anybody really is brutally honest with themselves, he's obviously not the Donald Trump of 10 years ago. He is not the Donald Trump of four years ago. He is already switching positions on taxes and different things. So who have we actually got as the candidate, the presumptive candidate for the Republican Party? I'm, I'm not sure if anybody really knows. And I think that's what gives some serious heartburn to uh, those who are perhaps, um, how could we describe them, a little more moderate Republicans, those who are a little more establishment Republicans, whatever your uh, term might be. We've got much more on Your Voice, Your Vote coming up. We're going to talk about the upcoming uh, primaries tomorrow because we do have another day. We've got West Virginia and we've got Nebraska. By the way, Hillary Clinton only has to get 17% of the remaining delegates that are up for grabs before she locks in the Democratic nomination. Uh, Bernie Sanders has said that he will continue to campaign until the very last vote is is cast. And I even saw this crawl a moment ago. I haven't read the article on it. But at the bottom of, I, I think it was on Fox, it said, Bernie Sanders hasn't, le- hasn't totally closed the door on running as Hillary Clinton's running mate. Now, try to imagine that. First of all, boy, you know, we've talked about the odd fellows uh, and the, the odd couples in this year's election. Wow. Talk about an odd couple. But also, assuming Hillary could maintain her strength and that Bernie Sanders could maintain his strengths, especially with younger voters and the more liberal side of the Democratic Party. Wow. Wow. 